If you will, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to start reading in verse 1. Hebrews chapter 10, I'm going to read verses 1 through 18. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never Take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for, from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he is perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Let me pray. Father, we ask, that as we receive this, as it is, the word of the Lord, that you would give us ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to his church. Father, we ask that we would understand rightly the gospel work of your Son, the, the work that you sent him to do, the work that has perfected his church for all time by a single offering. And the work of your spirit to come and apply the benefits of Christ, to apply Christ to us through faith. So that we might trust in Jesus and Jesus alone. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm not a, I'm not a big fan of, of bumper sticker theology. You guys know what that is. Now, now it was, it, historically, we had bumper sticker theology 
church marquee theology was before that. You just go buy a church, there's a marquee with a little saying on it, or then you had a bumper sticker, and now we've gone to Twitter, so you get 140 characters, or I think it's increased now, but you don't, you get to just say little quips of theological things. And the problem, the reason I'm not a fan of them is they're usually not nuanced well enough to be helpful. So we say things in little short bursts that, that in some way are getting at the right idea, but then just end up being untrue in other ways. So let me give you a couple of them. Probably my least favorite church marquee. You ready? No perfect people allowed. I've seen it on church marquees. No perfect people allowed. To which I think, well, then Jesus isn't invited here, and his church isn't allowed here. And I'd say, what? I understand what they're trying to get at. What they're trying to say is, we, we aren't a church full of people who are self-righteous and think that the reason that we get to gather together before the Lord is because somehow we're so good. We've become perfect in and of ourselves. I get the sentiment. But the statement is in some way incorrect. Or the bumper sticker, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. Again, I understand what they're getting at. In one sense, it's true we're not perfect. We're forgiven. In another sense, it's false. We are perfect. So here's what I want you to hear from me this morning. We're perfect. I know that's a, that's a stunner for you to hear me say that. Christians are perfect. Say, but no one's perfect. And when, you know, whenever you say no one's perfect in the way that we mean it, it's, 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 like, a, a, it's like the understatement of, of the millennia, Right? No one's perfect. Yep, that's a significant understatement because we all know we're wicked sinners, rebellious, breaking God's law constantly. So no one's perfect. We all know that. It's, it's, it's an understatement maybe only topped by Dr. Fauci in January. No need to worry about this virus, right? Becomes like the understatement of the century. But we hear this, Christians aren't perfect. No perfect people allowed. What if I argued that actually only perfect people are allowed in God's presence? Only perfect people are allowed in God's presence. Let me ask you a question. Can you enter heaven without being perfect? Can you come into God's presence in heaven without being perfect? There's no way. The Bible is, in fact, at pains to say that no one may draw near to God who is imperfect. God continually tells people, do not draw near, for this is holy ground. I'm present. If you draw near, you will die. Only those who are perfected in holiness can draw near to God. So what if I said, well, thank the Lord, because all Christians are perfect. Well, if I stated that, you should have a follow-up question. In what sense are you saying they're perfect? See, this is why it wouldn't work on a bumper sticker. If I drove around with a bumper sticker and said, thank God Christians are perfect, people would misunderstand what I'm saying, right? You see why bumper stickers don't really work. It would be true in some sense and false in another. So in what sense are you saying we're perfect? How can I argue that we are perfect? I'm arguing that we are perfected on the basis of the work of our Trinitarian Lord. That's what I'm arguing. We approach God in worship 
on the basis of the work of our triune Lord in the gospel and not on the basis of our own will or morality or effort. We do not come to God on the basis of our sincerity or our good character or our perfect law-keeping. We come on the basis of what God has done in the gospel. So we're going to look at that this morning under three points. Here they are. First, we are perfected by the eternal decree of the Father. Christians are perfected by the eternal decree of the Father, verse 10. We're going to be looking at verse 10 through 18. Russell took us 1 through 10 last week. I'm going to come back to 1 through, or 10 through 18 this week. We are perfected by the eternal decree of the Father. Second, we are perfected by the single offering of the Son, verses 10 through 14 perfected by the single offering of the Son. And third, we are perfected by the effectual or powerful application of the Holy Spirit. Verses 15 through 18. So first, we are perfected by the eternal decree of the Father. Look at Hebrews 10.10. Hebrews 10.10. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. This verse is sort of like the gospel in a nutshell. But I want to ask a question as we come at the first few words of it. Verse 10, and by that will we have been sanctified. Whose will? By whose will have we been sanctified? Well, contextually, if you look at the text, who's the will he's talking about? Go all the way up to chapter 10 and verse 5. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, now he's speaking to the Father, sacrifices and offerings you've not desired, but a body you've prepared for me. So here's Christ speaking to the Father. Look at verse 7. Then I said, again, Christ speaking to the Father, then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Then look at verse 9. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. In other words, Christ, the Son, has come to do the Father's will. He does away with the first covenant, that's the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, in order to establish the second covenant, that's the new covenant, the covenant in Christ. I've come to do your will, and by that will, by the Father's will, by the will of the Father, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So the gospel that we know in the work of Christ is a result of the decree of the Father. He eternally decreed to save a people in His Son. He did that. The Father sent the Son. You're familiar with it. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. The Father decreed to send the Son. He made an eternal decree to save us in the Son. Here in his love. Not that we first loved God, but that he first loved us and gave his son as a propitiation for our sins. Look with me, keep your hand there in Hebrews 10, and look with me at Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. And verse 3. Paul addresses the church at Ephesus and identifies himself and identifies them. 
And then he goes into a kind of a, a doxology. He, he starts to just praise the Lord. And notice his praise beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places? The Father. Even, verse 4, as He chose us in Him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. So by whose will have you been saved in Christ? By the will of the Father. This is not a result of your own will. It's not a result of your own will. Will worship is a bit endemic in America. We vote on everything. So, what do you mean the Father eternally decreed this? I didn't vote for it. He doesn't care. God is not, have, you know, is not holding some kind of a democratic process by which you decide what's going to happen. I know we often live day to day as if that's the case. But it's just not. Not one of us voted for the pandemic. None of us voted to be born. None of you vote the number of day, for the number of days that you will live. You don't vote for whatever gifts and talents you have. You didn't vote for Jesus. The Father gave him. The Father did not send the Son because we asked for Him. The Father sent the Son out of the overflow of His own love. I don't, I don't know if you always grasp the beauty of this truth. The Father, here's the truth that I think is beautiful. The Father did not send His Son because He saw something good in you or in me. I said, well, that doesn't sound very romantic. I wanted the Father to be in heaven sort of fawning over me. Oh, I'm just so moved by that person. You don't want that. It's, it's, it's nice. It sounds like some sentimental thing you'd see on Hallmark or touched by an angel or something like that. But it's not what you want. You don't want a God who's moved by you. Because if he's moved by you, then what happens if you continue to do things that are abhorrent to him? If he's got mood swings, if you will, nobody wants a God with mood swings, right? But if you have a God with mood swings, you're never going to be certain as to where you stand with him. Today I feel like I'm doing okay. Tomorrow I'm in trouble. What if I told you that God is unchangeably, immutably, eternally, one who loves you. Regardless of what is true about you today or yesterday, God loves you. He loves you because He set His love upon you. He loves you because He is love. That is just who He is. He eternally fixed His love upon you. What's good news about that, what's beautiful about that, is it's immovable, unchanging. It can't ever stop being true. The Father loves you, not 
because you merited the Son through your faith and goodness. He loves you, and therefore He gave you the Son. The Son didn't come to buy the Father off. It wasn't like the Father um, would like to have loved you, but He needed someone to come buy Him off first. The Son was sent because the Father loves you. He is not merited by you because of your faith or your repentance. Rather, He is given to you. And He's received by faith. Now listen, faith is not a virtue that earns you a right to the Son. Faith is a gift of God. Faith is an empty hand. It's the hand of a beggar wanting God to give him some bread. Further, faith is not measured by how deeply you know your depravity or how committed you feel to repentance. That's an error that often comes up among us. Some of us might wonder, I'm not sure if I have true faith because do I really realize how depraved I am? Is my faith real? Have I really shed enough tears over my sin? Will the Lord even accept my faith before I do shed enough tears over my sin and do know the depravity of my sin? Listen, there are two major problems with this understanding. First, it treats faith like it's some kind of offering you make which merits some grace of God. Faith is not an offering that merits you righteousness from God. Christ made the final offering for sin. Faith is an instrument. It receives. Repentance is not an offering that makes you right with God either. Repentance is the fruit of faith. I trust the verdict of Scripture. I look to Christ, I'm saved. I want you to hear this. The quality of your own faith and repentance, if you're looking at that, then you're actually looking at yourself and not Christ. Yes, you need to repent and believe. But no, faith and repentance are never the ground of your justification before God. Christ is your justification before God. Faith receives him. The other problem with this understanding is that it assumes, it assumes you'll ever sound the bottom of the depths of your own depravity. See, if I could, I won't know, you know, I won't really be received by God, I won't really know my faith is sincere until I've finally found the depths of my depravity and wept over all of it, and, and then I'll feel secure before God. The problem is, you'll never, if you dive into the ocean of your depravity, you're never going to find the bottom. I hate to break to you. I mean, that's not a particularly encouraging thing for me to tell you, but it's true. You're not going to find the bottom. If you're excessively introspective, looking in, trying to find out all your motives for everything you do, you're, you're just going to, you're going to become increasingly frustrated and self-centered and never find it. What, what does it say about sin? The heart is wicked and deceitful, right? Who can know it? You're certain, you will certainly not ever know the depravity of your sin. In fact, you'll get to the end of your Christian life, and the more you progress in your Christian life, finding out you were more depraved than you ever knew you were maybe 10 years ago. Like, I've been growing in godliness, and I'm finding out that I'm worse than I thought I was. My point in all this is that salvation comes by the will of the Father. 
comes by the will of the Father. He decreed this for you before the world began because he loves you. And what he decreed is the sending of his Son as the Christ to redeem us from our rebellion and condemnation. Second, we are perfected by the single offering of the Son. Look at verse 10 again. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. In other words, Christ offered himself once for all. We have been sanctified. It's a perfect passive verb. What that means is, it's passive, meaning it's not something that's done by us, but something that's done for or to us. We have been sanctified. That's something that happened to us, not something we did. And it's perfect, which means it's a completed past action. It's something that happened in the past that has ongoing consequences. So we have been sanctified. We have been set apart. We have been consecrated. This language speaks really of cultic. You hear the word cultic, you think cults. But all I'm talking about there is worship. This this is cultic consecration and purity. We could not enter the holy places before, but now we can. That's what he's saying. Because of the offering of Christ. We could not draw near to God before, but now we can because we've been sanctified. How were we sanctified? Well, by the will of the Father, but notice the next phrase, through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Christ offered himself through the eternal spirit as an unblemished sacrifice. Now notice those last three words in verse 10. Once for all. This is once for all time. Christ offered himself once for all time. There are no more sacrifices needed ever. Look at Hebrews 10.11. And every priest stands daily at his service. He's talking about the old covenant priests under Moses. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. See, the old covenant priests made daily and annual sacrifices or offerings that could never take away sins. Those offerings could only point to the Christ who can take away sins, who would take away sins. Those offerings could teach you about him. But those offerings in and of themselves could not take away sins. They could teach you about what was coming, but they were not the accomplishment of that. Now look at verse 12. But when Christ had offered for all time, you guys noticing the emphasis there? When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. Again, Hebrews does not want us to miss this. Christ's sacrifice does remit sins, and it does it once for all time. It is a single sacrifice after which he sat down at the right hand of God. His work is completed. It is finished. So it's by the will of the Father that we are perfected, and it's by the single offering of the Son that we are perfected. Look at verse 13. He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool 
for his feet from Psalm 110. In other words, the idea here is that he has completed his priestly work of atoning for sins. Now he continues the work of the priest king who intercedes for his people and who will soon return to judge the living and the dead. The emphasis in his sitting down is distinguishing between the old covenant priests. They stood daily at the service of offering because their work was never completed, because their work, their offerings, their sacrifices never atoned for sin. But Christ offered one sacrifice for all time, and then he sat down. He was done. The work was completed. It is finished. Look at verse 14. For by a single offering, again, that emphasis, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Note that again. We have been perfected. Who has been perfected? Those who are being sanctified. Or perhaps better, um, following the translation of the New American Standard or the Christian Standard Bible, those who are sanctified. Those who are sanctified. Those who are being sanctified is not a comment about progressive sanctification or growing in holiness. It's not talking about growth in moral holiness or moral renovation in, on the interior. The word isn't really used that way in Hebrews. It's, it's about being set apart, consecrated, purified for holy service to the Lord. Those who are being sanctified is a comment about who Christ has made perfect. That group of people. He's made perfect the elect of the Father. Those who are set apart from salvation, for salvation in Christ. He's made perfect, in other words, his church for whom he died. His people. So Christ's work is complete. It's finished. He has done it once for all time. He has offered a single sufficient sacrifice. And in finishing his work, Christ has perfected his church. This perfection is not speaking. Again, please hear this. This is where people are right when they say Christians aren't perfect. This is where it's true. This perfection is not speaking of the inward grace of of progressive sanctification by which we are morally renovated. It's not talking about that. We are definitely not perfect in our personal morality. We have a long way to go, further than we know. Rather, this perfection is speaking about the grace of justification and adoption for the elect being historically accomplished, that we are now set apart and able to draw near to God. It speaks of being given access to the Father, through the Son, and in the Holy Spirit. It is the grace in Christ which gives us access to God. We see this reference in Ephesians 2.18 and Romans 5.1-2. This perfection is applied to individuals like you and me. This perfection was also applied to individuals in the Old Testament, but it was applied through types and shadows that taught them of the coming Christ who would finally accomplish all this. So that perfection is ours by the grace of Christ, and it was theirs by the grace of Christ, but the major change being discussed here is that the church is no longer awaiting the accomplishment. We're no longer living under types and shadows and priests and sacrifices and tabernacle. The Christ has come. It's finished. The church now has the fulfillment. 
That's why Jesus will say, you guys remember this? John the Baptist is called the greatest man born of women. And then Jesus also says, the least in the kingdom of God is greater than John the Baptist. Now, how can you be greater than John the Baptist? Greater than the greatest man born of woman. How can you be greater than him? Well, it's not because you're morally greater than him, superior somehow morally. And it isn't. It isn't because you're going to be a greater world changer than John the Baptist. In spite of our culture saying that you all will change the world, we know it's, a, it's nonsense. None of you are going to change the world. I mean, it's just not going to happen. Just get over it. Be content to be, do whatever God's given you to walk in, in godliness and die and meet the Lord. Just be content with that. You're not going to change the world. It's fine. It, you don't have a burden to change the world. Nowhere in the Bible it says you should change the world. Nowhere. Jesus changed the world. The Holy Spirit will work through his church to do the work he wants to do. But you're not being a world changer. John the Baptist, somewhat of a world changer. Okay. How are you greater than him? Because you saw the accomplishment. We live after the fulfillment. John the Baptist's head was cut off before Jesus ever died on the cross, rose from the dead, and ascended to the right hand of the Father. We live after that. He had types and shadows. He did see the substance in Christ, but he didn't see the completion of his work. We live after the completion of his work, so we're greater in that sense. We live this side of fulfillment. We often lose sight of this glorious reality that the historical work of Christ has been completed. And, and here's how I know we lose sight of it. We lost sight of it in the medieval period um, as the Roman Catholic Church went down a weird road. I'm just going to say it. They began to say that we needed to re-offer Christ Every Mass. That's why Christ remains on the cross in Rome. And that's why every time you go to the, the Mass, they're re-offering him. You need the forgiveness of your sins, and so you go to have it washed away in baptism. Then you do confession and penance. You go to Mass. And because you won't have it all quite taken care of, at some point you're going to purgatory. And there... Um, the Lord will burn the rest of the sin out of you. It's necessary for Rome to keep Jesus on the cross being constantly re-offered in the Mass. Christ's once-for-all sacrifice for them is repeated again and again and again. And so Rome gives you a multi-sensory experience in worship. It's like the old covenant worship. Um, Luther called it a kind of eye house. What do you mean by eye house? You go there to see Christ offered once again in the host by the priests. And we can see the error, the error easily. Luther then came in and said that, and rightly argued, that the New Testament church is an ear house or a mouth house. What does he mean by that? The pastor is not a priest who offers Christ again and again to you, who re-sacrifices him. Rather, the pastor is a preacher who proclaims the final word that Christ has been crucified for you. You go to hear him say, it is finished. The debt is paid in full. Christ was crucified once for all. Yeah, we do have visuals. We're going to participate in one in a minute. Baptism. We do have visuals. The Lord's Supper, we're going to participate in that. But both of these sacraments, we call visible words. They declare to you that Jesus paid it all. 
They declare to you that you are forgiven, you are sanctified, you are righteous. Word and sacrament declare to you that not one more drop of blood must be spilled for the blood of the incarnate Son, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish, is enough. Now it's easy to pick on Rome, but what about our own errors? We make errors here, right? I don't know what kind of errors you've made. I mean, do you ever wonder if God will accept you only if your faith is sincere enough, if it's accompanied with enough weeping and sorrow, enough internal feeling about it? In other words, do you think somehow that your faith is an additional offering for sin? Do you think God will only accept you if you self-atone through heaping guilt and self-hatred upon yourself, or if you practice some form of asceticism, which is some kind of severity of the body, taking things away from yourself? We see evangelicals running after repeat performances of altar calls and rededications and baptisms. I'm often asked, will you baptize a professing believer again? If I profess faith, I was baptized, and then I come back to you five years later and say, I wasn't sincere last time, I wasn't a real believer, I'm sincere this time, will you baptize me? I always tell people, no, I won't do that. They say, why won't you do that? Say, how do I know you're sincere this time? Last time when you professed faith, you seemed sincere. Now this time you're more sincere. And five years later, you come back to me with another round of sincerity. When did you get the idea that baptism, that it's, if you will, its efficacy, is somehow grounded in your faith? You believe, and so you're baptized. But baptism is about the grace of God being extended to you. The same thing is true with praying the prayer. I don't know, when I was young, I don't know about you, I prayed the prayer like a hundred times. Every time I thought I was in trouble, I prayed it again. I, I sort of used it almost like a bartering chip. Lord, I'll give you my life if you'll just give me this, whatever it was. How many of these efforts will be enough? I often meet folks who come their first Sunday to church. I meet them and they say, I'm looking for a church where I can contribute something. And I think, well, why not look for a church where you can receive something? Where you can belong to something. And then you can serve. Listen, corporate worship is not primarily about what you come to do. It's about what you come to receive. Christ extends grace to you. And you receive it. I'm not saying you shouldn't serve. You should offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. But that's in view of God's mercy. You offer your bodies, notice, as a living sacrifice, not a dead one. You're not offering your bodies for sin because sin has been atoned for. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are not introspective acts of contrition and faith that I'm only qualified for if I've been sufficiently good this week. These are sacraments for weak and weary sinners casting themselves upon the grace of God in Christ. Certainly we ought to trust the Lord. Certainly we ought to repent of our sins and examine ourselves prior to approaching the Lord's table. But none of that is the ground upon which we approach the Lord. The Lord's table gives you a visual of the ground, doesn't it? The Lord's table gives you the visual of the ground upon which you approach the Lord. The once for all time broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ at the cross. His blood is like an infinite ocean of grace that washes away all your sins. And all your sins. 
and all the sins of Christ's people are unable to exhaust even one drop of Christ's blood. This is one of the beautiful and glorious realities, the newness of the new covenant. It's new in that it never grows old. It never tires. It never comes to an end. Christ's blood is the blood of the eternal covenant. So the virtue of Christ's death for you never waxes old. It is always new. In one sense, his blood is always as warm as it was the day it was shed. Always crying as loud on your behalf this day as the day that it was shed for you. Jesus' accomplishment for you, his atonement for your sins, was for all of your sins for all time. Further, Jesus sat down as interceding for you. He ever lives to apply his grace to you. And how does he apply his grace to you? By the Holy Spirit. And that's the third and last point, and I'll try to wrap it up quickly. We are perfected by the effectual power, the effective working of the Holy Spirit. So we are perfected by the will of the Father, perfected by the single offering of the Son, and perfected by the effective power of the of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 15. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, now he's going to quote from Jeremiah 31, but notice what he's doing right at the beginning in verse 15. Hebrews is now providing you the Old Testament evidence for what's just been said. In other words, the author's saying this. Don't just take my word about Christ's work. The Holy Spirit told us this was coming in the Old Testament. He told us this was coming. And the author here truncates the new covenant promise in Jeremiah. He's given you the new covenant promise in Jeremiah in chapter 8, but here he shortens it to two emphases. Look at verses 16 through 18. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law on their hearts and write them on their minds. That's one emphasis he picks up. Second, verse 17. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there's forgiveness of these, there's no longer any offering for sin. See, the Holy Spirit told us the new covenant was coming, and when the new covenant comes, we're told that the two great works will be accomplished, works which could not be accomplished under the old covenant. The law would be written on our hearts and our minds instead of on exterior tablets of stone. The forgiveness of sins would be accomplished. In other words, all sacrifice would be put away. These promises are speaking to the work of Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit. The Christ who has the Spirit without measure will come. He will keep the law, both in precept and in penalty. He will keep every command. He was tempted in every way, yet without sin. He will do what Adam failed to do. He will do what Israel failed to do. He will do what we failed to do. He is the second and better Adam. He is the true Israel. He is our representative, and he will pay the penalty due to to us for the violation of the law. He will do what the old covenant sacrifices could not do. He will atone for sins. Sins will be forgiven in him, and he will do all this as the Spirit-empowered Christ. 
the Christ who has the Spirit without measure, and He will pour out His Spirit upon us. The Holy Spirit will apply this work of Christ to us. The Holy Spirit applies the purchased grace of Christ to every tribe and tongue and nation. He will apply the blessing to the nations promised to Abraham, the blessing that will come by Abraham's offspring, who is the Christ. And when Christ was seated at the right hand of God, he poured out the Holy Spirit. We're told that in Acts 2.33. Now, I'm not saying the Holy Spirit was not working in the Old Testament. He was at work in the Old Testament. He's God. I am not saying everyone in the Old Testament was without forgiveness of sins, or none of them had ever been born again. They were born again. They did have forgiveness of sins. We read about it in the Psalms, for example. They were born again. That's why Jesus says to Nicodemus, you're a teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? You should know them. Have you read your Old Testament, Nicodemus? What we're saying is that these, they had these realities by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, just as we do, except they had them as those waiting for the Christ to come, waiting for the pouring out of the Holy Spirit rather than those who live after the coming of the Christ and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. That's our great advantage in the New Covenant. We now live in the era when all the promises of God are, yes, in Christ Jesus. They've been fulfilled. The Old Covenant system is over. And so Hebrews is saying, don't go back to the smells and bells of the Old Covenant. You have something so much better. Yes, the new covenant worship has less outward glory. It looks like this. We're all sweating to death, sitting outside in mildly comfortable chairs, right? Fanning ourselves, trying to get by in the heat, listening to someone preach out of a book. This is an ordinary book, ordinary voice, taking some elements, you know, juice and a wafer that we're pretty sure is some kind of plastic material, dunking people in some water, having a guy sing with a guitar while you have printed sheets of paper. Nothing outwardly glorious about that. That's not a huge, massive, beautiful temple with animal sacrifices and massive choirs and bands and and a priesthood that's just arrayed in all kinds of linen. That's not what that is. What we're doing now is not that. It has less outward glory, but it has more spiritual power. So don't go back. We don't have priests and temples and animal sacrifices and liturgical calendars, but we have him to whom all that pointed. We have Jesus. Yes, it's simpler worship. We preach the word, we baptize, we receive the Lord's Supper. But our worship is better precisely because the resurrected Christ is leading our worship by the Spirit. So now I want you to hear this, Sovereign Grace. Only perfect people are allowed to draw near to God. Only perfect people are allowed to draw near to God. And yet we're told in Hebrews 10, 19, look there, therefore, brothers, now catch this startling statement, since we have confidence to enter the holy places. No one in the old covenant had confidence to enter the holy places. They weren't allowed to. They had to stay far away. Do not come near. Therefore, holy brothers, since we have confidence 
to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, that's Jesus, let us, hear this language, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. See, that can only be commanded of us because we're perfected in Christ. By the will of the Father, by the single offering of the Son, and by the effectual power of the Holy Spirit. Praise be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let me pray. Father, we ask that your word would be applied to our hearts and minds. That we would understand your gospel. That we would know what it means. That we have been perfected, sanctified by your will through the single offering of your Son, by the effective, powerful work of the Holy Spirit. And it is because of this perfection that we can draw near to you in confidence. Not because of anything we've done or will do, but because of what you've done on our behalf. We pray, Father, that you would cause us to draw near to you and so be morally renovated so that our daily lives increasingly match the perfection that is ours in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.